Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we follow the story of JBS, the second largest producer of beef, pork, and chicken, who's now fully operational after being the victim of a ransomware attack by a Russian group named R-Evil. Luckily, the disruption to the food supply will be minimal, but workers going back had to put in some good old-fashioned manual labor as many of the operations at these plants are automated. For more on this latest ransomware attack on critical sectors of the U.S. economy, we'll speak to Elizabeth Elkin, agriculture reporter at Bloomberg News. At least some plants, we've heard, were doing operations manually. And so that means that logistical labor like packaging and accounting for cattle could be a challenge. One union rep told me that he'd compare it to driving manual while you're ramping up to get the car back into full auto, right? Everything from like knife sharpening to production line speed all rely heavily on automation for their controls. And so with a cyber attack like this, like that can be a huge challenge. And, you know, we saw all of their beef plants in the U.S. had to shut down on Tuesday, which is just huge, right? Like you said, I mean, they're a huge producer of meat, uh, the largest meat producer globally, and they supply almost a quarter of American beef supplies. So that is, I mean, it's huge and it's a lot of work. Yeah, you know, the extent of these outages and, and how much it's going to affect them, we probably won't know. They're probably JBS is probably not going to disclose all of that. But some of the workers returning were, you know, there was concerns about meat sitting in freezers for too long. It could render it inedible. So we don't know exactly what has been lost in the last few days that they had been closed. No, no, we don't. And, you know, if you think about this on a, a larger scale, right, we had huge closures during COVID. And if you compare that to this, this is a pretty small blip, right, compared to like COVID closures. But it still was it was big. And it's, you know, big that this humongous meat company had to shut down over this. Yeah, the prices of meat have been impacted, you know, a little bit. We'll see how much, it, you know, the after effects We'll have to kind of wait and see, but so far the prices have been affected. A little bit more on the actual ransomware attack itself. The FBI has said that it's been attributed to a Russian-speaking gang, our evil, a pretty, a pretty uh, <laughs> sinister name there. Um, but what what else do we know about this? We don't know if JBS paid a ransom, how much that might have been. You know, what do we know about that attack specifically? We don't know a lot, which has been, I think, frustrating for a lot of people. JBS has been pretty quiet about updates. And we, again, asked them for any updates that they might have today and haven't received any. We're, we're in a waiting game. We, Like you said, we don't know whether they paid the ransom. Uh, we don't know really any details about that beyond just that the FBI has come out and confirmed that it was this Russia-linked group. I think in this case, some of the backup servers were not affected. That's kind of how they were able to get back up so quickly, mm -hmm. thankfully, right? I think some reporting I saw said back in October, there was a representative from this gang, Our Evil, who said that the agriculture sector would now be a main target for them. And obviously, we see that now. And, and we saw with the Colonial Pipeline hack, bigger infrastructure areas are being targets for this ransomware attacks. And that's the concern that, that attacks like this will grow. And really, the cybersecurity setup in a lot of these companies 
just isn't up to protecting themselves from these attacks. This really upended the agriculture markets, and it did raise a lot of concerns about food security. We're seeing, like you said, increasing targets of this critical infrastructure. And yeah, wholesale meat prices are at the highest level since the early days of the pandemic last year. Cattle futures swung wildly. This is really a concern. And the White House did come out and say that corporate leaders should immediately develop plans to try to counter these attacks, like offline backups to uh, critical information. And there are no Department of Agriculture cybersecurity regulations or requirements for meat packers, we've discovered. What are we hearing from employees? I know JBS said that there wasn't evidence that uh, any customer or supplier or worker data had been leaked, but that's always the concern when uh, servers and, and things are attacked like that. Absolutely. And we've been hearing a lot from employees that they are really concerned about this. And I mean, if you were an employee there, I'm sure that this would be a concern for you, too. We're hearing, you know, about some of those challenges that people have faced as they go in. Like we discussed, some of the things that are having to be done manually that usually wouldn't be. Now, most of the plants are back up and running uh, pretty good capacity. And I know that we have been in touch with like unions, uh, looking at, you know, as they're trying to get people back in the door here, like, what does that look like? There's some concern, but also pretty much everyone who I've spoken with thinks that, you know, JBS will be able to come back up to full capacity of doing all of the things that they usually do. And other companies have kind of been encouraged to uh, come in and help fill this gap. Elizabeth Elkin, agriculture reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. The housing market in the country continues to be as crazy as ever with low inventory and sky-high prices. But thousands of homes known as whisper listings or pocket listings are being reserved for certain buyers and it's squeezing the supply even tighter. In some cases, brokers may show an unlisted home to a small circle of buyers before publicly advertising that listing. This all just means that the dwindling options for home buyers continues. For more on all of this, we'll speak to Nicole Friedman, housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Normally, to buy or sell a home, the seller will list their house publicly. So they'll put it on multiple listing service, kind of a local database that has all of the house listings. And then from there, it will go on to you know Zillow, Redfin, Realtor.com, all of these websites so that any buyer can see the home. There will also be a for sale sign out front, lots of marketing. And the idea is to get you know as many buyers as possible who want to tour the home and make offers. And especially in this market, it is super competitive out there for buyers. Buyers are desperate to buy homes and there just aren't enough on the market. So any home that does go on the market these days is likely to sell very quickly and get multiple offers. But in some cases, brokerages are not putting listings on those public databases, but they're keeping them kind of in-house. It's called an office exclusive, also called a pocket listing, where a brokerage might have a house that they only market to other agents inside that brokerage. And there are various reasons that sellers might want to do this. It's a little bit more common in high-end markets. If a seller is, say, a celebrity or somebody who has a lot of privacy or safety concerns, they might not want all of these people touring their house. They might not want photos of their house on the internet. So sometimes sellers prefer these kind of more private listing options. 
And that means that the house is kind of only advertised within a certain brokerage. And so only clients of that brokerage get access to these listings. But what that also means is that a buyer who is looking for a house to buy and going on these websites every day trying to find new houses on the market might hear, oh, wow, this house that completely fits my criteria just sold. And I didn't even know it was for sale. I didn't even get a chance to look or to make an offer. Let's put some numbers to it because these pocket listings accounted for about 3% of sales on average for the past year that ended in March. 3% is not that much, but that's about 169,000 homes. That's a lot of homes. Right. So it is not, to be clear, the entirety of the inventory problem, right? There really is a shortage of houses and it is not only that if all of these houses were listed publicly, there would be enough houses. There is a long-standing shortage of homes, and this is just kind of one small corner of the market that is these houses that are being sold kind of more privately. But it does account, as you said, for about 3% of the market. So that's not a huge proportion, but it is up from the year before and the year before that. So it is kind of rising in this more competitive market. I guess it was uh, Freddie Mac estimated that the housing market is short nearly 4 million homes. That is a ton of homes that people are looking for right now. Absolutely. And so really the bigger issue is that for the past decade, home builders have not really kept up with long-term demand. And so there is this big deficit of houses that people are ready to buy that just haven't been built yet. So what is this all doing? I, you know, I, I mentioned also that you know the home prices are at record highs right now. We kind of saw the first slowing of the pace of these purchases but it's because house prices are so high and it's pushing some buyers out. Yeah, so definitely affordability is a growing problem right now in the market that house prices are being pushed to record highs because there's so many buyers competing for so few houses. And so buyers are just outbidding each other. And it's getting really difficult for first-time buyers, buyers in the lower end of the market to afford homes. People are getting priced out. So that's a growing problem. But right now, the demand is just so strong that even if some people are getting priced out of the market, there's still more buyers there ready to take their place. Nicole Friedman, housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also this week, still getting a lot of play, is the coronavirus lab leak theory. Recently, we found out that three researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology got sick in November of 2019 and sought treatment at a hospital. Their symptoms were consistent with COVID and common seasonal illnesses. Also being talked about in this conversation was an abandoned Chinese mine where people got sick after clearing out bat guanu. Scientists from the Wuhan Institute took samples there and found several new coronaviruses in 2012. Calls to investigate the coronavirus origins have intensified as China continues to limit information. For more on all of this, we'll speak to Ken Delanian, national security correspondent at NBC News. It's getting more play now because actually the facts on the ground have not changed much. But what, what's happened is, you know, you had the Trump administration, uh, the China bashing, you know, hot rhetoric Trump administration saying a lot of this stuff. And it was discounted it, often in many circles. It was discounted. But in fact, right from the beginning, my U.S. intelligence sources were very skeptical about the origins of this because they said to themselves, look, these coronaviruses come from bats that generally are in caves a thousand miles from Wuhan. But somehow this virus first arose in, in a human population in Wuhan, which just happens to be the center of biological research in China and just happens to be uh, the location of the only sort of high level lab where they're doing that, you know, really 
you know, high end research where they wear the, you know, crazy suits that we've seen in the movies. And so uh, that's the circumstantial case, right? And then they saw that China was covering up, was obfuscating. And then when they asked for uh, data and, and information about what was going on in the lab, um, they weren't getting it. And so now a lot of scientists initially discounted the notion that there could have been an, and we're, by the way, we're talking about an accidental release from the lab. No serious authority that I know alleges that this was somehow a bioweapon. The, the prevailing theory is that they were studying coronaviruses in this lab and that, you know, somebody may have gotten infected or some, in, in some way the virus escaped and got into the human population. Initially, the woman who runs the lab said, we're not working on, we weren't working on any coronavirus similar to COVID-19. And she also said that nobody from her lab got sick. Well, now we have this U.S. intelligence report that the Wall Street Journal first uh, reported on and that we we have confirmed that the U.S. government has identified through a, another foreign intelligence service, we're told, three researchers at the lab who sought hospital treatment for what is described as COVID-like symptoms, pneumonia-like symptoms. Now, we don't believe the U.S. government knows whether that was COVID. But what's interesting about it is, if it's true, it contradicts what the head of that Wuhan Institute of Virology um, said. So it raises questions about her credibility. Um, it's, so it's obviously not a smoking gun. It's one piece right. of circumstantial evidence. Then there's other pieces. There's, you know, the State Department put out a fact sheet in, in January. It was the Trump administration on the way out the door, so it didn't get as much attention. But it also alleged that uh, the Chinese military was doing secret experiments at that lab, which the, the lab folks have denied. Um, so what you're seeing is a lot of uh, scientists and people who had initially kind of um, downplayed the idea that there could have been an accidental release wanting to take another look at it. And also in part because a year and a half later, we, they have not been able to identify an animal to human vector. Right. That doesn't mean they never will, but they haven't so far after in a very intensive search. I think you mentioned it, and it's the credibility issue that's a, a really a big factor here. You know, China has not been credible throughout this whole thing. Unfortunately, you know, a team of researchers from the WHO went out to research. You know, all the reports that we saw was that they were very limited in the scope of what they could look into. Even some of the scientists that signed on to the letter saying this definitely came from an animal. Some of them are changing their tune. Everybody's just calling for more openness and more research into what's going on. That's right, Oscar. And, you know, in fact, that WHO situation was pretty disheartening because you had some very reputable scientists go over there for three days and they visited the lab, but they didn't really have access to firsthand information. They weren't able to interview researchers, uh, you know, independently. And they and they emerged and said, not only did they say, we don't think we don't believe in the lab theory, they said it doesn't merit further investigation. Well, immediately, the head of the WHO contradicted them because he has access, presumably, to some of the intelligence that the U.S. government has. And I'm sure phone calls were made. And the U.S. government's position was, wait a second, we can't rule this out. I mean, we're not saying we, we can prove it or, or even that it's the leading theory. It's, there are two essential theories that this virus, you know, naturally occurring, transmitted from bats to an animal host to humans like other SARS viruses have done. And we, or that there was this accidental lab theory. And, and the U.S. government's position is, we are examining both possibilities and both merit investigation. And now you're right. You're seeing more, even Anthony Fauci, who initially really kind of poo-pooed the lab theory, recently has been saying, no, I'm not ruling that out at all. Now, the problem, though, my U.S. intelligence sources tell me is that at the end of the day, we may never know. If China continues to 
um, deny access to data and they've purged databases. They've, you know, they've, they've made it really difficult to get information. Um, obviously, the U.S. intelligence community is focusing resources on trying to find out. But even if they found, let's say the National Security Agency intercepted some what seemed like smoking gun emails, you know, proving that, in fact, the Chinese were talking about a lab leak, they would be concerned at this point that that's disinformation, that the Chinese were trying to you know, run an operation on them. So it's really going to be difficult to find ground truth in this now yeah. when we're having it's sort of a spy versus spy situation. Definitely. And now what's kind of coming into focus, they're looking at this Chinese mine where six miners, I guess, got sick. This is stemming back to April of 2012. Um, they were there. They were clearing that guanu from there. Uh, three of them died, but they all came down with this similar type of illness. Um, and they went back there. They took a bunch of samples from there. They were able to identify several new coronaviruses. And, and you know, so this is one of those sticking points. Genetically, everything points to SARS-CoV-2, the one that causes COVID-19, coming from animals, something of a natural evolution. And these new coronaviruses are all similar percentages of uh, 60, 70 percent in some cases, similar to SARS-CoV-2, but they're not exactly the same. Uh, but but just as we've been talking, everything just kind of comes together. And now people are focused on this. There's not enough information about that incident now. And people want to know what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. You know, the mine that you referred to, you know, where these miners got sick, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was called in to investigate that situation and they took samples. And so, and this, by the way, this wasn't the only, these weren't the only they, they, samples they were taking. They were, they made a habit of going into caves and places where bats were to find SARS, uh, SARS viruses because they were studying those and they brought them back to the lab. And, and they, the problem is we don't know. They have, they've said we didn't have a virus that was close to, um, to COVID-19, but um, we don't know that because we don't, the U.S. government hasn't had access to the data. To, um, they haven't been able to interview the researchers. They haven't seen lab notes, the kind of things that a normal investigation would call for. And so um, it's really interesting that, that this lab was studying these viruses that are so close to COVID-19. And in fact, they were also doing what's known as gain of function experiments, which makes the viruses more contagious and more able uh, to infect humans. Those are controversial. Some scientists think, you know, that those shouldn't be done because they're dangerous. They were working on it. And, and by the way, they're not doing this again. They weren't doing this uh, as, for some kind of uh, bioweapon. As far as we know, they were they were doing this to try to learn about coronaviruses to, you know, to, to develop vaccines and prevent them from spreading. But if there was an accident, the, the world needs to know that because it, it has implications for how we would respond how we understand this pandemic and, and certainly should be a warning to China that it needs to get its house in order in terms of its lab uh, safety and security. Yeah, it, just an interesting position. Uh, this far along, we have vaccines that are already fighting against the virus. And when it comes to the origins, we have more questions than what we started with. So still something we're going to be hearing a lot about until we hopefully get some type of answers. And as you mentioned, we may never know. So we'll keep monitoring all of that. Ken Delanian, National Security Correspondent at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Oscar. Great to be with you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.